Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So let's, uh, let's turn to step seven, uh, identifying the goals uh, that allow me to combat the impact of my suffering. And one of the biggest challenges that we'll face here uh, is how do we become active without accepting the false guilt um, or distorting how we've been allocating responsibility. Uh, and so we're turning a corner. Uh, Steps 1, 2, and 3 were about rightly understanding what we experienced without shame. Steps 4, 5, and 6 were what we might call narrative redemption. It was about taking the destructive scripts off, replacing them with realistic but redemptive scripts. Step 7 is where we ask the question, how do we effectively re-engage with life? Because we're not just going to live life in our heads. We're going to live life with people. How do we do that? And as we become active, we say, here are some areas where I can have influence. That old habit, that old reflex of assuming influence means responsibility may begin to reemerge. And that's what Foot and Friends were talking about when they said, uh, antibiotics have a helpful effect on strep throat. But their absence didn't cause it. Uh, You can help, but you're not to blame for the problem. And you're not responsible for the outcome. You're only responsible for trying in the ways that you choose to try. Now, my note here, all of this assumes safety. And so if the relationship that you're thinking about applying these principles to is not yet at a spot where it has stabilized, where safety uh, is a consistent Uh, description of that relationship, uh, I would encourage you to look again at Appendix A, How Do I Develop a Safety Plan, uh, and look at applying these principles in some of your other relationships that may be affected by these unhealthy styles of relating while this one remains um, working towards safety. So, first piece here is gaining perspective. Uh, In in one sense, all of this seminar has been about gaining perspective. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we're going to look at it in a bit more detail here. Uh, gaining perspective does not mean having some falsely positive uh, perspective on things. It just means an accurate perception uh, that identifies what I really can and cannot do to make it better. And so the first part required in gaining perspective, and we're going to hit this from several different angles, is allowing consequences. So what I'd like for you to do, I'll give you just a moment to think here, in your words, define the difference between allowing consequences and punishment. If you were going to think it through, what was the difference between those two things? Allowing consequences, punishing, whatever your definition is, and my definition doesn't have to be the definition because I'm, on the, ga- I'm the guy on stage with a microphone, um, but I think it should have some part of 
Allowing consequences is really just about getting out of the way. Allowing consequences just means I'm not going to be a buffer between you and life. Uh, punishment has a couple of qualities to it. It tends to add to the quantity of pain. Uh, so it makes a bad situation worse. And the purpose is to coerce change. When I allow consequences, I don't know if you're going to change or not. Uh, I just... I, that natural system of consequence that God has to try to open your eyes, I'm totally going to let that be between you and God. Uh, punishment is when I think if I knock you on the head a couple of times, figuratively speaking, uh, that you're going to wake up and see what's going on. Uh, so we think of a, a passage like Luke 15, uh, which is commonly called uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, we might expand that to say uh, the parable of the non-codependent father of the prodigal son. Um, it, uh, and if we look at it, um, the, we can see some aspects of healthy, healthily allowing consequences. Um, you know, we healthily allow consequences when we're available for advisement and accountability before the destructive choice. Um, when it's reasonable for our loved one to know that what they did was wrong and it was going to have negative consequences. When we take no delight in and take no effort to add to their suffering. Uh, when we become the target, we remove ourselves from the situation. So when the dad's like, look, if you just want to go to this other land, you don't really have a business plan, you're just wanting to like go and kind of silly living and that kind of stuff, this isn't going to go well for you. You always think you're right, you uh, we remove ourselves from that situation. We're willing and available uh, to talk about the prevention of future bad consequences. Yet, all of the stuff in the middle, we can stay out of the way. Uh, and functionally, what allowing consequences looks like, what it feels like, is waiting. It's like waiting for somebody to wake up when you feel like you're wait late for where you need to go. Uh, and so what can we do during that time? We can pray. We can think through healthy problem solving, at least through methods of indirect influence. And we can continue to enjoy our life. Um, now, another part of gaining uh, perspective uh, is a healthy process from problem solving. It chances are most of our problem-solving methodology to this point has been reactive. They create the mess and we react. Uh, and we've built our life around that. And sometimes we get really mad and upset and sometimes we get overextended and sleep-deprived, but primarily reactive. Now, if you say, uh, when do I share this problem-solving methodology with my loved one? Uh, when there is reason to believe that they are open to it. And if there's reason to believe that there's some degree of openness, humility, that kind of thing, then, then I'll speak that. And if they back off and they, they don't want to, then I don't force it on them because I can't. Uh, but what does, what does this um, problem solving look like? Now, I acknowledge here in the examples that I'm going to give, this is the point in our journey where each of our journeys look the most distinct. So in any of the suffering-based seminars, by the time you get to step seven, 
uh, what it looks like for each one of us is much more different than it was in the early stages. In the early stages, we're like, ah, this makes sense. I do that. I experience that. I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. This is great. And and we feel like we're in the same spot. Uh, In this stage of our journey, this is where we go, ah, what, what you need to do to be healthy is different from where I'm at. And so part one, we define the problem. We try to do so in specific and concrete ways. Uh, we focus as much as we can on behaviors, much more than emotional reactions. Uh, recognizing that the quality of our description is going to greatly impact the effectiveness of whatever plans or problem-solving ideas that we come up with. So, uh, if we take a scenario here where one spouse uh, is uh, got a drinking problem, uh, a vague emotion-focused definition of the problem might sound like this. She came home drunk, ruined the entire evening I had planned for us to enjoy. Uh, she ranted, I couldn't take it, uh, and then I lashed out and watched television for the rest of the evening. When I shut down, she just kept drinking. Um, it, now, if we were going to say, what would be more of a concrete behavior-focused definition of that kind of situation? She had a conflict with her mother, uh, driving home from work, and she coped with it by stopping for a drink on the way home. Uh, After the conflict, even before drinking, uh, she forgot about the plans that we had that evening. Uh, She came home already mad, uh, but only mildly buzzed. Uh, Her sentences were mostly coherent. Uh, She was trying to tell me about the conflict. As soon as I smelled alcohol, I immediately allowed myself to become disappointed uh, and to become... That was the most important part of the evening. Uh, and I engaged in an argument that I knew was going to be unfruitful, but I was mad and I wanted her to be hurt, so I did it. Uh, that is concrete behavior. Now, after we find the problem, then we brainstorm. We come up with as many ideas as we can. Some of them are ridiculous, and the only purpose that they serve is comic relief. But what we're doing when come up with a whole bunch of ideas is we are breaking out of the mentality of powerlessness. Uh, We're going to see that we've got options, ways that we can influence. And as we do that, I think it's helpful to break them down. This is what I can do before. So like if I look at this situation beforehand, was there any way that I could have influence? First awareness that something was going wrong in the middle of it, after. And so you can look through there before, you know, can block uh, calls from her mother, move to a country without cell phone reception, uh, send her text during the day to remind her of what I'm looking forward to in the evening. Uh, you know, we just got those kinds of things. Uh, now, Leslie Vernick tells us why we don't like to do this. Uh, she says, what often stops us uh, from taking responsibility or ownership in a situation, it's not really that we don't see our choices. It's more that we just don't like our choices. Um, and, and so sometimes we look at the list and there's nothing that just, it doesn't look like the blue light special at Kmart that we're excited about coming home with. We're, uh, none of this is really what we want. Uh, but she says we learn to live differently by living differently, not by thinking about living differently. So these things that we're putting down, some of them we're going to have to do something with. So then we evaluate and select a solution. I give you some criteria uh, because I love charts. Excel is my love language. Uh, And so uh, I give that to you here. Uh, You can kind of put whatever options seem reasonable uh, in the far left column. And then uh, on a 1 to 10 scale, uh, we look at the probability of effectiveness. 
and the ease of implementation. Uh, and on those two variables, uh, we're looking for what gets the high score. And then we look at temptation to control uh, and temptation to enable. And there, low score wins. So that's like golf. Um, some of these, we're going to say, yes, I want to do that now. Uh, some of them, we go later, and some of them, we say never. Uh, but we always want to have some ideas in the hopper. So here, uh, text my wife about the end of the day plans. Probability of effectiveness, 50-50, I don't know. Ease of implementation, it's pretty easy. Uh, temptation to control, those things are pretty low to enable. Okay, I'll do this one now. Uh, hunger strike, uh, probably not going to be effective, not very easy to implement because I like food. Temptation to control is high. Um, this one just seems like a bad idea. Uh, but it gives me some way to go through and begin to quantify what I would want to start with. So then we try it and we track it. Whatever's the best idea, uh, we implement it. We give a defined period of time and we track the results. So example, because the drive home is a time when my wife frequently argues with her mother, um, and that's when it becomes a temptation, I'll call her on her drive home. Uh, I'm going to do this for about four weeks uh, and see what impact it has and how sustainable it is. Another example, uh, when we have evening, evening plans, I will text my wife notes uh, about the things I'm looking forward to in our time together uh, as a way to serve as a positive reminder about our plans. Uh, and so instead of saying, don't screw it up, I want to have fun tonight, hey, I'm really looking forward to blank. Uh, and so we do that for a set period of time. Then we evaluate it. If it seems to be working, we refine it. If it's not working, we scrap it and we go to something else. So example, initially... Uh, this worked well, the whole calling my wife on her ride home, but then the mother began to feel shut out, and she would only be more upset when she finally did get to talk to my wife. Uh, and so what we decided uh, is about two or three days a week, uh, I was going to be a buffer. Uh, and I'll, I'll call on those days, uh, and I'd ask my wife to text me, hey, this is just a way that I can be a buffer, and I can help you be not available. And, and so if you just shoot me a text that says, like, it's a seven, this is not a day when I need to talk to my mother, uh, then I'll make sure to call you. And on the days where you feel like work hasn't been that bad, then, then you can do it that way. Uh, or the example, hey, the texting thing, it really worked well because throughout the day we could kind of talk and flirt about the things that we were looking forward to. When there was something to look forward to, then there was less of this sense of hopelessness and despair, and that one seemed to work, and we liked it, so we're going to keep going. Uh, with the other one, you know, we modified it a little bit. Uh, and, and so that would be uh, that area. Uh, next area that we would look at is building resilience. Um, and, and this is, how do we build some of that emotional sustainability? Um, the, uh, here, we're going to look at three areas, and we'll kind of go caution, freedom, caution. Uh, assuming that we're coming out of a context of uh, destructive relationships, uh, that we're going to err on the side of caution. Uh, the, the first side is wise trust. Uh, too often, uh, when we come to one of those tricky little words like trust, uh, it becomes one of those, well, either you trust me or you don't. Uh, which is the quintessential all-or-nothing mentality uh, of addiction and abuse. Uh, there's degrees of trust. Trust is something that grows and develops. Uh, and so what I have here is kind of a 10-stage progression uh, for how trust can grow. 
uh, I am not presuming that every broken relationship is at stage one uh, or that it should be. Uh, it, I'm not saying every one of these has to be hit in this order in order for you to grow trust right. Uh, but this is one of those areas where I find that oftentimes people just don't know. What would incremental trust look like? And when we don't know what the next small step is, we feel like we've got to take the next leap or just turn our back and go away. Uh, and so we might start with um, this relationship requires third-party mediation. I don't believe a word you say. Uh, and until, unless somebody else is there to vet it and verify it, then um, no, I'll trust them. And if they trust you, then I'll trust them less, but I'll stay in the conversation. Um, Listen and require validation. This is tedious. Uh, but anything you tell me uh, needs to have evidence. Uh, listen and require less validation. This is usually just because of um, life being uh, sustainable and we can't hold up that validation uh, standard for that long. Uh, rely on my loved one functionally. Uh, we get to that point where, um, okay, you setting schedules and things like that. There's just this functional level. I'm going to become your parent if, if there's not some functional level of trust that engages. Uh, then sharing facts. Uh, this is part of my life I want to be able to share with you. I don't trust you enough to share some of the things we're going to talk about in just a moment, but I'll share facts. In that you can know about events and happenings uh, then we begin to share beliefs. Uh, I'm not crazy about you countering those beliefs or trying to say why you think they should be different, but I think, I feel uh, those kinds of things, sharing feelings, uh, a bit more vulnerable uh, there, uh, relying on my loved one emotionally. Uh, this is the, um, you know, this one and allowing them to care for you. This is where we begin to give our feelings to this person. Now you may say, I've been giving them some feelings. Uh, but no, that was more throwing feelings at them uh, than it was. This is the point where we share. Uh, it is on the table. It can be discussed. Um, and then we relax and feel safer with our loved one than when we're apart. And if you were to say, what do I do with this? It... I might ask you to, to look for three things on here. Um, where did you start? Uh, when, the, when the relationship was at its most broken, where was the level of trust then? Where are you now? And what's next? Uh, now, if you look at the next page, one of the things I tell you is I don't give you uh, a timetable. It, uh, and so with that, there is, um, you know, it's not as if this is a six-month process and we've got to be at stage five by month three, uh, because when we start measuring it that way, uh, we tend to kill it. Um, but the next area, wise trust, uh, the freedom to be nice. Uh, if we don't feel like we can be nice in a relationship, we start to feel like a meanie. And we're only going to feel like a meanie for so long before we give up and we just quit. 
But in these kinds of relationships, when we think about being nice, then that starts to sound like enablement. And so what is the difference between being nice and enabling? Uh, Being nice is creating a pleasant atmosphere uh, where change is possible and beneficial and warranted uh, without pretending the problem doesn't exist or anything's better than it is. Uh, Enabling is doing nice things, pretending that things are better than they are. Uh, And and so what I do uh, is this is just another one of those charts that I've borrowed from different resources that I've found that that just gives you an area where you can mark out aspects of niceness. Uh, These are the things that tend to evaporate when a relationship goes sour. Um, Now, what I would encourage you to do, and what we'll look at here in just a moment, is we want to be nice at the, to the degree that the level of trust in the relationship warrants. And so again, that's that idea of that healthy view of boundaries that I'm going to live in wisdom. I'm going to invite you to live in wisdom with me. And the more uh, that you live in that with me, the more we're going to experience the fruit of wisdom. But once a relationship has deteriorated, uh, we, uh, we often have to be intentional uh, about being nice because all of this has become unnatural. Uh, now, as you look at the things that are there, uh, some of the questions I would invite you to ask. Uh, are you using any of these things as a way to pretend that things are better than they are? Okay, if so, that's a caution against enabling. Uh, this is where we remember codependency is not about what we do. It's about why and how we do them. And so we have to ask the why and how questions uh, about these kinds of things. Um, are any of these forms of kindness bestowing a level of trust that is unwarranted? You know, if somebody is still throwing things back in your face and saying, well, if you can be nice like this, why can't you do that other thing? And your niceness is going to be leveraged, yeah, then that's probably not wise at that point. Uh, is there any temptation towards enablement or control? You know, am I going to do this with the expectation that if I do this, you'll do that, and so it becomes a form of needy giving? Well, at least now as I look at it, I'm being intentional and looking for the opportunities. I can be more self-aware. But one of the things that Scripture says that brings people to repentance is kindness. Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. Uh, Romans 12 talks about uh, when somebody is uh, being destructive, there is a form of niceness that we should do uh, that is like uh, heaping coals on their head because it just drives them crazy to be mean to somebody who will be nice to them. Now, again, caution. We need to see that when Paul wrote Romans 12, he immediately wrote Romans 13. It was one continuous letter, not separated by chapters. And so at the end of Romans 12, he's talking about interpersonal stuff. And and at that level, we don't need to retaliate because retaliation only makes things more escalated. If there is the opportunity to show wise kindness, as far as it depends on us, we should do that uh, because that's going to make this person just feel worse about what they're doing. And it's a good guilt because that's God's opening their eyes to things. Romans 13, the government bears the sword for a reason. So if you need a restraining order, get it. Um, and, And those things don't live in tension. Uh, That is one continuous letter. Uh, And then the fear of the Lord. Uh, You'll see a diagram there from Ed Welch. The idea here 
Somebody can't get more voice than they should have in our life without God having less voice than He should have in our life. And it's usually as this other person takes on a God-like role in our life that God becomes this scary figure that if we think if He's like that, then I want no part of either one of them. And, you know, one way to phrase a question with the fear of the Lord is just, who is about the only person who has my best interest and my loved one's best interest both in heart? Okay, that's the person who should have the most voice in this entire situation. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, that's what we're after. And that's why Ed Welch would say the fear of the Lord simplifies life. The things about addictions and abuse, they make life really complicated. Trying to live with all the rules that contradict one another and all that kind of stuff, it gets messy crazy. Uh, this is a simplifying variable. Uh, emotional triggers, um, you know, abusive, addictive relationships can have all the influence of trauma. Uh, I give you the major symptom clusters of trauma there, uh, the intrusive symptoms. Uh, which are more your anxiety, fear-laden, uh, constrictive and emotional numbing where we just don't feel like we respond to life well at all, hypervigilance where we're always on guard for what's going wrong next. Uh, if you look at that and say, that describes a whole lot of what's going on to me, what I would encourage instead of just reteaching the material here, uh, in the trauma seminar, uh, it's bradhambrick.com slash PTSD, uh, we go through... Uh, methodologies for engaging with each of those symptom clusters uh, that would be, if you said, yes, that's what I need to work on. Uh, in the larger notebook, there's an article, uh, it's Appendix C, uh, on gaining emotional clarity that uh, oftentimes coming out of uh, an abusive or addictive relationship, we don't trust our emotions anymore. We've been told what we should think and what we should feel so much and in so many different ways, in so many ways that conflicted itself. And even when we tried to do it, it was never good enough and it worked. But we had no choice but to keep trying because it wasn't safe if we didn't. Uh, that we feel like we don't know what name or what response to put on any given moment. Uh, and so Appendix C, if you say, that sounds like my experience. I don't know what emotional label to put on a given moment. And even when I do, I don't quite know what that's supposed to look like and feel like. Um, that is a larger subject that we're going to cover here, but Appendix C is a resource uh, meant to help you with that. So, um, last part of Step 7, uh, growing in positive influence. Um, it, so, two parts here. Uh, one is responding to problematic behaviors. So this is when your loved one, uh, they respond in a way uh, that is uh, destructive. Uh, what are the kinds of options that we have? Uh, you've heard this before, uh, but allowing natural consequences. And that's not punishment. Uh, I love the way that Foot and Friends describes that. They say, we call this strategy quiet confrontation. Because allowing natural consequences help relocate the stress, frustration, and fight within your loved one rather than between the two of you. Um, then we can ignore. Uh, some problematic behaviors are not worth addressing. 
addressing them directly would only give them more negative influence. And so we don't want to do that. And what is the best way to ignore uh, a problematic behavior that doesn't warrant attention? Engage with something you enjoy. Excuse yourself in a kind way. Honey, I can tell you've been drinking. I'd love to spend time with you. We've talked about this. I'm going to go read a book. I'm going to go watch my show. Honey, you're getting into that line of questions where you're asking a string of rhetorical questions. This doesn't feel safe to me. I'm going to excuse myself. I would love to talk with you about this tomorrow. And uh, we, we go to that. Uh, punish. Uh, most seldom used strategy uh, because it tends towards control and you become a distraction. Uh, you wind up in a parental role in a relationship that you don't want to. Uh, withholding rewards. This is why all of that material about kindness is important. Oftentimes what happens in a relationship that's gone destructive uh, is we get into what I call the battle of attrition and every good thing in the relationship dies and so there's nothing else to take away. Um, and we can't even remember why we started the relationship to begin with. Uh, and by having those wise kindnesses those kindnesses that are appropriate to the level of trust that is warranted in the relationship, then we have some things there that their removal uh, becomes part of the alarm. And it's stronger than just allowing natural consequences without crossing into punishment. It, uh, now, fostering desired behaviors. Uh, here, this is just how do I grow my positive influence? Uh, create a list of concrete behaviors. Uh, oftentimes when a relationship gets destructive, it is very clear to us what does not need to happen. It is not quite so clear what should happen. But we know absolutely what shouldn't happen. Uh, and so what I would encourage you to do uh, is maybe create a list of what would it look like when things went from terrible to bad. And when it went from bad to less bad. And from less bad to acceptable and acceptable to good. And again, we communicate this when there is some evidence uh, that our loved one is open to hear it. Um, and again, what uh, foot and friends say here, simply asking permission to offer your thoughts can communicate respect for your loved one's feelings um, before you say another word and set a better stage for what follows. And so at that point, ask. If you're not sure, um, you know, if it's a marriage and you say, you know, honey, here's something I think would make our... Um, our marriage better? Would you be opening to hear it? Or maybe it is uh, a friend. Uh, this is one of those moments where I think our friendship could be stronger. Um, do you mind if I share with you what that is? And if they go, I just don't think I can handle that. Okay. Well, when I would like for our friendship or for our marriage to be stronger, and when, uh, when you're open to that, I, I would like to share, but I appreciate you letting me know where your limits are. And Whoa, what do I do with that? Um, but you having that list and then being content with progress. Now, the elephant in the room is that you worked hard. You're getting to the latter stages of step seven. Um, it doesn't feel like they've worked quite that hard. Uh, and, and it's understandable for you to want this other person to work as hard as you've worked. But your effort is not their standard. 
And when we get to that point that our effort is their standard, we've gotten back into that trap of needy giving. And so we have to be content with progress. Uh, refuse to be a distraction for non-progress. There's going to be times when progress stalls. Hopefully that is one of the benefits of this material. Is it gives you lots of things that you can focus on and work on. It gives you permission to engage in some of your interests uh, in a way that you don't feel like uh, that if they stall, you're stuck. Um, reward incremental progress. It is easy for the person who has been caught in a destructive style of living to begin to think the whole world's against them. Everybody's just against me. They're mad at me. They want to punish me. When, when we get past the point and we're free from feeling like we have to appease them and we've assessed what healthy trust looks like and the kind of kindnesses that would be proportional to where they are, uh, then we can begin to counter that destructive narrative for them that when there is progress, um, we can show additional kindness and gratitude uh, in a way that doesn't say everything's better. Nope, we define things well enough in steps two and the impact in step three. Uh, we're in a context of support where we're not uh, going to think just because we took the next step, everything's better. Uh, but we can reward and celebrate progress and then create a satisfying homeostasis uh, that does not involve addiction or abuse. Uh, homeostasis is just a biological term uh, that means the environment in which something thrives. Uh, so the environment for a penguin is really cold, aquatic, fish. Um, it, the homeostasis, uh, when our loved one, whoever they may be, or the tone setter, has been a homeostasis of dysfunction. As we go through this process, uh, we are, we're saying we want, to be the, we want to be the tone setter for function. Now if you say, what do I do at the end of this step? Um, at first, probably nothing. Look over the this stuff that's there. Pick the piece that you think would be most helpful. Take a deep breath. Uh, and then when you feel like, yes, this is a good idea. This is something that I want to do because I think it's effective, not just because Brad said so. Um, then uh, begin to implement that. 